0: Here we are, beautiful Lake Tahoe at the Edgewood Resort at a wonderful private event put on by The Collective. I think this is maybe my first time recording outdoor podcast. How about you? <laughs> Definitely a first for me. Well, I think uh, the first is a quite, quite an eventful first. I mean, I don't think we're ever going to do anything better than this. No, it's a pretty high bar. So we're both Northern Californians, so we we're able to drive up here. So both of us have been here many times. And when I look behind us, obviously it's the grand natural resources of California, right? And we're here also to talk about the other natural resources. But I was also telling um, PJ yesterday at the event how what I love about California is like the cos- cosmic insignificance meditation, right? This place is so grand; yeah. Yeah. it makes me feel so insignificant. Yeah, but you've, you've lived here your, your whole life. life. Do you do you take it for granted sometimes, or you still see all that natural beauty?
1: You know, you, you do have to catch yourself every once in a while. I've been coming up to Tahoe since I was you know three or four years old, and uh, my family had a place up here for twenty years. Uh, and so, yeah, there there are times when you're a younger person where you definitely start to take it for granted. Um, but I think. There are always moments where, you know, you have the quiet and you have the calm and you look out on something like that and you understand, you know, why this was considered such a spiritual place by, you know, the original Indians that inhabited it.
0: Um, It's just it's a very grounding place. I've always really enjoyed it up here. And then for those who don't know, my pleasure today is my illustrious guest is my friend Robert Mullen from Marathon Resource Advisors in San Francisco. Um, so, maybe Robert, maybe we could start with you giving a, a brief bio or in your own words of, of how you got here. Sure. Um, so, I've been a natural resource investor
1: since the early 1990s. Um, you know, went to school in another beautiful place, the University of Colorado at Boulder. You know, clearly I, I, I like the mountains <laughs> yeah. um, and, and skiing and everything that goes along with it. Uh, but I started out in the natural resource space at the Franklin Templeton Group. Uh, covered a couple of sectors before that, but really gravitated towards resources. I had a little bit of a family history in that my mom was, uh, uh, grew up on a West Texas cattle ranch where, um, unfortunately they never actually, they looked for oil and natural gas. They never found it. Um, so it was definitely, it was about as far from Dallas as you could imagine. Very unglamorous, but a wonderful place to, uh, you know, really understand the outdoors and sort of rural Texas. And so, um, but, uh, you know, came out of the university of Colorado, uh, Backpacked around the world for a year, and then started working for Franklin Templeton. And the energy sector was always one that you know was, was seemed like an easy uh, fit for me. Um, it fit with my natural skill set, which was uh, I've always been less of sort of a fortune teller about sort of what future multiples might be on certain sectors or certain companies. Um, it's really about you know trying to buy a dollar's worth of assets for significantly less a dollar you know and it's it's very m- mechanical in some ways and very uh you know mathematical and you build models and you understand cash flows and you understand assets and you and and so that's how i got started in it and so uh have been doing it ever since so now it's pretty much 30 years of uh banging my way around the natural resource space
0: and then uh you so said 30 years So also you probably won't mind me mind me dating you a little bit, bit but i had to go back to, to backpacking to around the world for a year yeah. what year uh so that was 1991 1992 This is so perfect because I remember the very first time I got an email address was 99 in Mm -hmm. Istanbul, Turkey. I signed up in an internet cafe for like a Hotmail account. Yeah. So, so what, what you and I both know, and both know is, like, when you're traveling around the world in the early 90s, 90s it's, it's a totally, totally different, different world, right? Absolutely. No cell no, phones, no, no. no email, no anything. It's a totally different world. No,
1: my parents wanted me to check in, like, every Sunday. So I would try and find a place where I could make an international call, which is easy from Europe, um, yeah. but significantly harder from areas like Thailand or, um, you know, mainland China, which we went for a little while. We actually thought about doing uh, the Trans-Siberian Railway. Um, but unfortunately there was a coup <laughs> around that time. So it, was, uh, it, it got a little messy, but it was, it was an amazing experience. And, and it was. Navigating around the world back then, pardon the pun, but demanded a resourcefulness to be able to figure out where you were staying. There wasn't an Internet to figure out you know, where you would go. You couldn't email back and forth with these people. Oftentimes the language barrier was pretty significant because in some places English was very frequently spoken, other places not so much. Um, so it really took, it took effort to travel. Uh, and there
0: was a reward that came with that which was was pretty amazing. I was thinking about now that I'm an adult my poor parents like I would call home once a month for like 5 minutes. Yeah. Like you know like I'm yeah. doing fine I'm, I'm alive and that's all that's all they do about it was going on. And then so I think about too I'm always very romantic about the natural resource space, you know, and I think about the miners that are, you know Flying all around the world, to these far-flung places, like going into these countries, figuring things out. And then, so part of that romanticism is Jim Rogers. And Jim Rogers wrote, you know, those great books about riding his motorcycle around the world. Investment so, binder, is that, yeah. How much is that like tied in? Like, how do you think about that? It's like that, probably that backpacking trip. Not knowing at the time sows kind of those seeds where when you're dealing with natural resources you're dealing with these global commodities and it has a very to me very romanticism very global traveler kind of sense to it.
1: There's there there's something sort of basal and fundamental to them. You understand how everything works off of the raw materials, whether it be you know energy or copper or agriculture. or It just nothing nothing works without it. Nothing survives without it. So you get a taste of that. Um, but it is also there's a, there is without question a sort of adventurism romantic. About it's it's like pirates and buried treasure. You know, you are trying to go to the far reaches of the world to find something that before you, no one thought existed. And so that's that's uh, there is an element. It's distinctly less sexy when you're you know you know camping out in the middle of uh, you know the Northwest Territories and you know and this was never me to be clear. Um, You know, banging away at rocks for six or seven years, and all of a sudden you're like. Well, geez, we got nothing. Um, so, but I think the air from the investor side and even the casual observer side uh, is very much that uh, you know this is there. There's, there is some romanticism to it, absolutely.
0: And then everything you know now about like uh, drilling technology and everything, do you still wish you guys had that West Texas ranch? Do you think there's actually this part? Of you think with the technology, there might have actually been something there. They dismissed it.
1: Yeah. So this, the ranch still is in the family. Oh, really? Um, yeah.
0: So uh, I'm, I'm the oldest of 13
1: cousins uh, who are still, um, you know, involved with uh, the ranch. It's you know, we're pretty sure that it, I think natural gas would probably have to go to something. Very, very high um, to make whatever is on the ranch economic. It's in a period. It's it's sort of in. The, it's called the Marfa Basin. Uh, mm. So it's not too town, tam- not too far away from a very cool artsy yeah. town where I actually have family um, in Marfa, Texas. Uh, and so you know, look at some point if natural gas trades for twenty bucks an M, um, you know we might we might have a story there. Between now and then, we actually one of the things that we thought about was when the uh, frac sand uh, boom was going on, where there were people were looking for the materials to push down into the reservoirs to be able to hold open the cracks in the very highly pressurized reservoirs, um, we thought we might have a deposit of frac sand on, on the ranch. And unfortunately that boom kind of crested and rolled over a little bit too quickly for us to take advantage of
0: it. Timing gets us every time. Yeah. a question. Yep. <laughs> so one of the things that's been obviously highly prevalent these days, but you've been writing about for years. And I always love reading everything you write about and watching every, all the videos you do and other talks you give is this transition to EVs and whether that battery transition looks like with you know, traditional um, raw materials, but also to rare earths, all that sort of thing. So, talk to me a little bit about how you think about that transition to EVs, and, and how that affects the way you think about trading the markets. Yeah, so there's, so there is
1: this, uh, there's a political imperative to move this way. Um, the decarbonization, um, you know, uh, kind of flip side of that is anti-fossil fuels. But there's there is a there is an extraordinary global imperative to move towards more EVs. That's seen as sort of the tip of the spear of decarbonization uh, and reducing CO2 emissions. Um, I think there are, there are nuances to it that are lost in most of the political discussion. Um, but without question, I think the stats, someone like uh, Robert Friedland from Ivanhoe will tell you that we need more copper in the next 20 years than we've mined in the last 200 so it's a huge call. Whether it's the batteries for the EVs themselves, the other materials that are necessary uh, to be able to make uh, EVs work, all of the transition mechanism, uh, transmission mechanisms, and and all the infrastructure that goes around it, the grid level battery storage that you need to turn wind and solar power into something closer to baseload, so it effectively can be integrated into the grid. All of that is 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 massively, massively. Um, materials intensive. For the same kilowatt hours of uh, you know of energy, um, relative to a natural gas uh, or a coal plant, you need about seven to fifteen times more materials, metals and materials, to be able to generate that same kilowatt of energy uh via wind or solar and so uh, i think we've seen this as this easy oh wind is free and and the sun is free and this is all going to be very easy and all just 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 subtract that um sort of uh, side of the ledger that is the emissions generated by the oil and gas industry um and you know we're we're off and it's free and easy um the energy transition comes with a gigantic materials and therefore a energy and carbon footprint along with it to make it happen. And so, so that's, it is both a challenge and a really neat opportunity. I mean, one of the things we were talking about in one of the sessions yesterday was, you know, AI and how do you express it? Um, And so this is a little less energy transition, but more that, you know, you look at almost everything is materials intensive in one way or another. So, you know, Nvidia trades it depending on your estimates, 35 to 40 times sales. you don't have to believe that NVIDIA wins. If you believe AI is a big thing, um, clearly the proliferation of significant numbers of microchips and microprocessors is going to be a key theme of that. You know, NVIDIA may be the winner in that, they may not. The one thing you need for all of those is tin. You Because know, 50% of the global tin market goes into microchips to be able to effectively solder them together. There are alternatives for it, but no one's using lead anymore for anything that's uh, you know that's even more toxic than that than most of the hydrocarbons so so one can't win without the other one you can pay 40 times sales for the others you can pay four times earnings for uh, and so to me i think there's just a much more interesting way to express it you know the the, <laughs> the the consensus around the room was you know that's the way to invest in it as opposed to trade it and Will people ever care? We don't know. But to me, that's just a much more comfortable way of allocating capital.
0: It's interesting to me in the sense that when you're dealing with commodities, right, it's almost like a throwback to bygone eras, which is part of the romanticism. And then when you think about cash flows and being a value investor, it's a a very – stayed way of looking at the market, a very smart way of looking at the market. But at the same time, when we're talking about EVs, we're talking about the future of batteries. Yeah. So you have this bifurcation of right, you're thinking about old school commodity and digging stuff out of the earth and what does the yeah. what is the cash flows of the company look like? And then people are promising all these future things with batteries. Yeah. And so I wonder how like how do you deal with that some of that dichotomy is like right now the batteries in the EVs are, you know, they obviously become more and more impressive. Yeah. But like you're saying for solar and wind, we have transmission, we need better batteries. People talk about even using batteries on planes. Yeah. Like so how much do you go you want to believe in this future battery, but sometimes you're like, the physics just doesn't pan out. And so it's, yeah. it's hard to deal with. Sometimes.
1: Yeah. So so, you know, you're replacing when, when you build an EV, you're replacing 180 pounds of a gas tank with a thousand or twelve hundred pounds of a battery, which is massive. It's lithium. It is copper. It is manganese. It is graphite. Um, it is all those things. Um because of the weight of that battery, you need to do other things to the car, which is you need to make lighter panels. Um, so you need more plastics. Guess what? More hydrocarbons. You need um, to replace steel with aluminum. Guess what? Huge energy intensity on that. And you have to actually get the aluminum. you get to got to get the bauxite. Um, the torque generated, the weight and the torque of the EV <coughs> actually goes through rubber tires much faster. So you're all of a sudden going through much more of a carbon footprint on tires themselves and so I, I think it's it is viewed in black and white I can sometimes be absolutely insufferable at San Francisco <laughs> cocktail parties when people decide to go off right, on a tangent right, right. and I try to inject some right. of the real math to it um, occasionally I just get the tap on my shoulder from m- my wife just saying all right I think they, yeah you know, come on um, but it's it, but it's true, and the unfortunate, the the real unfortunate truth is that most of the political discussion about the integration of renewable energy and EVs is done on effectively kind of cocktail napkin math. It's it it just it bears no relation to a. Can we find all the stuff that we need to build these as fast as we're promising? Which I think the answer is no. Um, B. Can we? Um, get the infrastructure there fast enough to be able to make all of this work together in a way that gives us power on a reliable basis and allows our economy to much, you know, to at least stay where it is, if not grow. Um, And then, you know, finally, there's just there's there's, I think this massive misconception about the actual cost of it, both in terms of dollars and in terms of carbon emissions itself. And so I I just think that gets lost in the discussion. And all we get is snippets of politicians competing with each other as to who can promise the transition faster, because look, it polls great and people love it they're just not being told it how much it actually costs. People here, well, we're actually in Nevada, but in the great state of California, yeah. we've seen exactly what it costs, where you know we've been the most aggressive in terms of integrating renewable power into our grid. Um, and our power costs are going up four times as fast as anywhere else in the rest of the country. And Germany is having the same thing. And so um, I just I'd, I'd like the discussion to be more honest and more thorough. And unfortunately, that's just not the nature of politics
0: there's a couple of divergences I want to take there. One, I think you were bring, bring up yesterday too, like how many, even hydrocarbons are in asphalt. Like, yeah. so when you, for the roads and they, and then correct me if I'm wrong, I think even in, in the rubber tires, you need carbon black, which is a hydrocarbon as well. Right. Yeah. But this is a out, totally outside the box question, but like sometimes you read about, uh, reflective natures of, of road surfaces and everything and, and a lot of scientists or people will speculate that we should have like white roads and everything like mm-hmm. do you think we could eventually change that like i was thinking like do they need to change tires how to like yeah. is there a reason like we go with black everything yeah i think there's there are a lot of things
1: that work you know at bench scale yeah. that are really hard to implement yeah, yeah, yeah. on you know at real scale yeah. um, so there was actually someone built a solar road in yeah. um it, it, i think it lasted about 6 weeks before you know the pressure of the cars and the dirt that was on it and everything else just totally in the degradation of productivity um, was was really rapid and the cost of it i think they abandoned it after you know less than 6 months uh, and so i think what we have to believe is that most of the things that are getting integrated today have been in the works for a really long time these transitions take Um, you know, decades, if not more. And the idea that we have that we can look at sort of the evolution of microchip technology and how fast do those things move and do that to, and and extrapolate that to the physical world where, look, the first lithium ion battery was created by a guy at Stanford who was on, you know, a consultant for ExxonMobil in the late 1960s. Um, And while the battery chemistry has changed, it's not, you know, it's not significantly different. The electronics around it have evolved, yes. Um, but I think the likelihood that we find a magic, hugely scalable kind of uh, solution that really changes the economics of renewable power, and I, think, I think that's a stretch. You know, the closest thing, quite frankly, that we have is nuclear. Right. And we are, for reasons that are wholly political, choosing not to use that, um, which I think is one of the most remarkably short-sighted things that uh, you know the world, I think we will look back at this in 30 or 40 years and say, if the goal is really to reduce CO2, why in the world are we shutting down existing nuclear facilities?
0: Um, the other diversion I'll take, you. hopefully you'll disavow me of, because we brought up California, and you've been around for both Governor Browns, I assume, right? Or maybe you're a kid, you know, with the first Governor Brown. But like, uh, I've always heard, and I, I never really dug too deep into it. So maybe you can tell me is like the idea was originally what with the original California uh, governor Brown and even to his son is like the idea with PG and E was like, you didn't have to upgrade your infrastructure costs as much as long as they um, invested in renewables. So they gave them the incentive because they really wanted to push renewable energy. And so for decades now in California, instead of like upgrading their wires and their infrastructure, they put it all into renewables and that's how they got away with not upgrading the infrastructure. Now that, Oh, I, is easily like uh, you know, I I jump to conclusions there. But is, do you think that's categorically true, or is it more nuanced? I it I,
1: it is more nuanced. To and what I understand, it's not an area that I am you know v- extremely well versed in. Um, but I do think that the push to spend in areas that don't necessarily generate a near-term economic return has absolutely caused the starvation of capital to just the base level of maintenance. Mm. Um, and we see that throughout the country, not just at PG&E. They are the most you know, most poignant example of that. Um, but uh, But look, there's only a certain number of dollars out there. And if you are investing in things that don't Currently generate economic returns. And I think one of the things we discussed in one of the sessions yesterday was those who will tell you that the energy transition will pay for itself um, are relying on, I think, one of the most inane uh, statistics out there, which is the uh, Lazard levelized cost of energy, um, which is an interesting way to compare to some degree what, um, you know, if normalizing what sort of the costs of different power sources are Um, but it bears absolutely no relation to the economic reality of installed power anywhere in the world and so they'll point to these metrics and say solar is you know solar is the, the 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 cheapest way to you know generate power and it's like yes if you don't have to pay for the land and yes if you don't have to Um, figure out how to transmit it from one way to the other and yes if you don't have to store it someplace so you can use it at a period of time and yes if you don't need backup power from anywhere else just in case the sun stops shining which it happens to do kind of half the day and there are clouds and it's there there's just a there's a um there's a there's a shallowness of the arguments of economic viability. I'm fine with trying to make the environment better. I think this maniacal focus on CO2 is a little short-sighted. There are other things that we should be concerned about as well. Um, but we just we have to have an honest discussion about what it's going to cost. I think people will be much less likely to give politicians a blank check to push renewables to a mass thing if they get the honest scoop, which is well, guess what? Your power bills are going to go up by 30 or 50 or 100%. Um, so let's just have that discussion, have it honestly. And if we're willing to pay for that, great. Um, if we're not, if we'd rather pay for schools or roads or retirement for employees or whatever we need to do, you know, then we have to prioritize. One
0: of the my favorite things in life is one of those minor epiphanies or light bulb moment when somebody makes a statement of the obvious that you didn't think about before. And then you hear it and you're like, Oh my God, that's so obvious. And one of the things you were really going into yesterday, that was so brilliant that to me, was a statement of the obvious. I couldn't believe I hadn't really thought about it as much before. was the idea, like you were saying is like, Any sort of natural resource extraction to go EV or however you're looking at it, the input costs of the energy and the the cyclicality of like this feedback loop of how much energy does it take to get these energy intensive resources out of the ground and like the feedback loops of that. And like as these prices go up, the input costs go up. And so maybe you could speak on like kind of like that circular nature a little bit of like the cost structure. So the so the energy Transition has progressed as fast
1: as can, and renewables have gone have grown as fast as they have because of you know over the last decade we've had very low cost of inputs, um, the raw materials uh, and energy inputs have been very inexpensive. Production has been consistently moved to low cost locales, a lot of it into China where they get cheap labor and cheap power, um, and you know quite frankly a massive amount of government subsidies. And so you know the spend on renewables has been something close to ten trillion. Globally, a significant portion of that has been government-funded. Um, very little of it has generated actual profits or economic return. You know, I'm a believer that at some point, whether ten trillion is that point or not, um, you know, re- renewables have to sort of put on their big boy pants, kick off the uh, you know the uh, the training wheels, and show that they can generate economic returns. And we just we haven't got there yet, so the subsidies are still really significant. Um, but then, absolutely, you look at this uh, sort of cycle of, okay, in order to create the renewable systems that we need to do, um, you know, we need to extract 20 times as much lithium. We need to uh, you know, set, get as much copper in the next 20 years as we've gotten in the last 2,000. The problem with all of this that is lost in those who just look at sort of the U.S. geologic survey and say, yes, there's tons of copper out there. We can easily meet these needs. They miss the fact that there is copper in the earth. just like there's gold in the ocean. It's just not economic to extract. Um, And so, look, we've had... A big boom in the production of natural resources that was driven by the Chinese and Asian industrialization back in 2000 to kind of 2010. That capital expenditure boom extended out to 2014, and um, you know, and we built a, a huge number of projects, and that led to the overcapacity that made resources such an awful place to be, effectively from 2010 to 2020. Um, but you know now all of a sudden we're stuck with having to massively accelerate how much of these things that we need to produce for you know for renewables copper lithium nickel zinc uh, all you know uh, all of the rare earth elements and things at a time when the cupboard is it's not bare but there's a reason that the current projects that are in jurisdictions that we can do um, that are have gotten the permits that they need, that have had the delineation drilling that they need to under, really understand that deposit. Um, the ones that are left are sort of you know, the way I described them yesterday it was kind of an island of misfit toys. There are reasons that they don't, that they haven't been developed yet, because if they weren't developed in the last, you know, it, from twenty, you know, two thousand six to kind of two thousand and fifteen, <clears throat> there was something wrong with them right because we had a really low cost of capital equity and debt were freely given to the resource companies because there was this belief of this the extrapolation of this great commodity boom um, so if he didn't get developed it's because your grade is too low you got to move mm-hmm. too much dirt it's too deep it's too remote and all of that what that all boils down to is it's more energy intensive you know that and the you know look the the Head grade, which is what you typically the production grade of copper, you know, 15 years ago was 1.3%. Now it's 07 I think. So the amount of dirt that you have to move from today's mines, the existing mines, not the new ones that we have to build, but the existing mines, you have to move twice as much dirt to get the same amount of copper. That is energy. To be able to move all that and the idea that we can kind of go out into the you know wilds of Chile or the you know uh, or none of it up in uh, you know northern Canada and then power that with renewables like you know a big electric dump truck is going to have to have a battery about as big as the truck yeah. so um it decreases the efficacy of it um and they're starting to get some of that technology forth and in some places there may be uh ways to use it but but then you're talking about having to make the battery for that truck and then and so there's uh, the way i described it was a, a giant ouroboros of yep. the more you create renewable systems the more Energy and extraction, and quite frankly, CO2 production that will happen because of that. And so I, I just think we're not, we're, we're looking at a very narrow part of the ledger um, without taking into account the secondary and tertiary effects of it.
0: My simplified analogy of it that I thought of too was like uh those first few seasons of Gold Rush, the TV show. Very romantic, love watching it. But all I could ever look at was the the input costs is like the more the more tailings they move like you said, like all the good land's been picked over right for the for in the yukon so they're going like into tailings where they got to dig deeper or whatever and then every time they they fire up all of their bulldozers or all of their dredge everything they do is requiring that oil input cost yeah. so as all things oil remained low they had that delta and gold prices remained high and it was just this always this race like everybody look at that gold at the end of the week and be in, they go oh my god they made like a half a million dollars this week mining right. and then i'm like i'm waiting for the after of like how much did they spend on gasoline how much did they spend on labor it's like running three shifts like yeah. the amount of gasoline the inputs cost like to that and to and to what, how they have to mine it was it was kind of fascinating to me to think about the input cost and the other one i thought of just now was uh yeah. thinking about you know you have to have a rational perspective i mean it's good to, for people to be optimistic to push us forward mm-hmm. but then it made me think of Ica batista in brazil right like yeah. deep yeah. ocean drilling off the coast of brazil yeah. great idea maybe two the input costs were higher than he expected, and he and he lo- he lost his wealth faster than any billionaire in history. Yeah. Like so to give another example. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Little less romantic version. <laughs> yeah, that's the source. That, right. That's
0: definitely the less romantic version. uh It's it's, a, it's such a fascinating story. I was like living in Brazil at the time that all that stuff happened, so it was always fascinating to me. Yeah. um One of the other things, like we, you know, we talked about um all that, all these different forces. One of the, you have a coordination problem, and you and I didn't have time to talk about this yesterday, but like. When you're talking about especially movement to electric vehicles, batteries, renewables, there's a global coordination problem. And I think like historically, um, it always is kind of interesting to me that it's as, as, as as first world countries, we tend to push our pollution, our refining, our toxic you know industries off into emerging markets, and then we tell them you need to upgrade to our standards, and then they're like we're just industrializing our nation, and you push this pollution onto us, and so that, yeah, and so there's there's a, a tragedy of the commons problem, but the one that I thought was most interesting recently that um I think I was talking to a guy with Stockgen was talking about this was that um when Germany you know, it was always hold the line, hold the line. We're doing all this stuff. And then when, when all of a sudden their natural gas pipeline gets shut down and everything, all of a sudden they flipped on a dime. And so what does that tell to all the emerging markets? They're like, hey, you changed your mind and you switched who are you to tell us to 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 do what you do? You couldn't do? Yeah, yeah, they went, you know, they spent half a
1: trillion dollars to build out their renewable infrastructure um, and built a very flawed and very vulnerable system. Um, and then the moment that it looked like the lights might go out, they went straight back to lignite coal, which <laughs> yeah. is like the you know the bottom of the barrel, kind yeah. of dirtiest, nastiest stuff that you can imagine. And so it, it, it I think it's 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 a great example of how challenging. This is um, it. Really is. It's just there's the 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 struggles to be able to do that. The, the political imperatives have outrun the physical realities. Um, last year was a bit of a day of reckoning for that. I think we've we've slipped kind of back into a little bit of complacency about that. You know, I look at you know we have gone. If you think about what's happened in sort of Europe and the European power markets. We have gone from the equivalent of, you know, like oil prices hitting 145 dollars in19, uh, whatever or sorry, 2007, um, right at the very front end of the global financial crisis, um, to. The equivalent of the negative 45 dollar print in covid you've actually got negative power prices in europe right now because they swung so far they spent again in addition to the half a trillion dollars that they that germany alone spent to go renewable to go wind and solar europe as a whole spent half a trillion dollars this summer or sorry this winter just to make sure they had enough resources to be able, to. so they got they got a little bit of, of a hand from Mother Nature. So they had a two standard deviation, you know, warmer than uh, or uh, uh, warmer than normal winter, and so you know now they've got this surplus and power prices have gone negative. And so everyone's like, hey, we're good. You know, we, we, there's there's a problem. We're done with it. We're all you know we're back that 's not the case, you know there were some th- things about last year, not only just the weather variability that you can't count on having cooler summers and warmer winters in rapid succession like that. History shows you it just doesn't happen um, but really the reason that they were able to secure as much LNG as they did last year was that China was shut down you know China was effectively out of the market they were you know importing you know like uh, thirty thirty percent less LNG so that opened it up for Europe to go out and compete for it. China's no longer closed down, and so if we do – and certainly Nord Stream doesn't look like it's going to be working anytime soon. So um, there's a really interesting kind of opportunity set opening up because we've gone from kind of maximum concern to total complacency. Again, uh, and that's reflected in the equity markets for some of the European um, kind of natural gas producers. Uh, and so, I think there's there's kind of an interesting, uh, I think, very asymmetric bet that can be put on there that I think is kind of interesting.
0: So I want to come back to the asymmetric bag. I want to also come back to, like, uh, global macro and how you think about that overlay and um, supply chains and dynamics with China and, and Belt and Road Initiative and those sorts of things. But I kind of come back to some basics a little bit. Is like when we think about natural resources, commodities, et cetera, I work with a lot of CTAs, and that's how people usually think about, um, you know, uh, Investing in those markets is via, you know, futures strategies. Um, But part of it is a lot of people will say that, you know, when they look at stocks, bonds, and then commodities they are like, it's a neutral return environment. So people like to put a trend following overlay on it and trade directly in those futures markets. But I think a lot of times uh, we were talking about yesterday that when we talk about rare earths or or some kind of like off the run, so to speak, you know, metals, etc. You know, there's not liquid commodity futures markets for that. Like they're only spot markets. And so then it's maybe better to go into the, the resource equity markets like you do. And then that's where you can find companies that are working on this. But now you've got a, another set of problems. We all have nuanced trade-offs, right? And now you have you know, man, a management problem. You also have that uh, Keynesian Beauty contest that we were talking about yesterday um, with how does, what's the market's voting machine, you know, doing to that equity. So maybe talk to me about the, the nuances of why you prefer the natural resource equities than necessarily playing in the, the futures markets. Yeah. And I will say I do, I do
1: some yeah. of the, the futures directly. And, you know, we, we, on some reasonably successful um, you know gold and silver direct commodity trades earlier this year Um, but really the skill set that i I think i've developed over the last 30 years is really in the resource equities Um, and so it's part about about trade construction it's part about understanding the different variables and it differs at various points of the cycle and sometimes it's just it's better to do a commodity investment Um, but it to me i have always believed that um, if you really do your work in the you know three, four, five hundred kind of resource securities that I think kind of fit our criteria, which are high free cash flow generating, um, you know, some sort of capital return and folks to them. So so we're naturally self-selecting a less volatile, less downside vulnerable uh, sort of uh, subset of resource equities. Um, And so to the extent that we can find things that work in that realm and you can really get comfortable with management risk and local geopolitical risk and the geologic risk of the specific deposit Um, and the more you invest in sort of later stage things and not taking exploration risk the more you have kind of certainty about that and so that's why we've typically done i did a lot of early stage um you know pre-production exploration and early development stage investing earlier in my career um i'm just more comfortable when you know we know what's underground and we know what the cash flow statement looks like and so uh you know, sometimes it's hard. You know, I have found at times where there are there there might be a very specific niche commodity that I want to be involved with, and there just isn't a good equity way to express that. So then you sort of have to look for something else, and maybe, you know, um, you know, like like Chris has, Chris had a fantastic talk yesterday about uh, sort of options uh, theory and trade expression, and so you know, then then there are ways that you can you can find different ways to express it, and um, but you know, for the most part, there's there's typically enough equity depth to be able to find what we want to do um, in at least. You know, modest size uh, to be able to make it work in, in various markets, and so right now we're you know very constructive in energy, which is usually pretty easy to express. Um, you know, there's lots of options there, um, sort of globally, and it's, it's it's probably half of the natural resource traded market is, is an energy. Um, agriculture is a little bit of a thinner market, but there's still a fair amount of, you know, volume in those names and, um, and, and a lot of different options, whether you want to be into fertilizers or plantation companies, or, you know, if we've been involved with uh, palm oil companies in Indonesia and sort of, there, 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 are lots of different ways to get there. I think that's a very interesting space. Um, we have had, you know, last year was a big year for us in the lithium space. And so we, we had some, uh, things that were a little bit earlier stage than we typically go, but it was just a really spectacular asset uh, in a place where we thought we had a due diligence edge on it because of some of the um, people that we work with. And so, you know, look, I think there's just a lot of very interesting things going on in the natural resource space. And uh, there's no shortage of ideas. If anything, it's just a shortage of capital to be able to invest in all the things that we want to.
0: So one of the think ways I think about resource equities too, I think a lot of people's first on in resource equities is, is via gold, right? Like people start with gold and then they want to they want a more leveraged versions, so they go with the gold mining, you know, equities and you see people play that. But like they're searching for positive convexity, but a lot of people just tend to get burned in that scenario because also they just they don't maybe do enough research or due diligence or expertise in the space. They're just looking for a leverage gold play. So maybe talk to me then about like how you construct your book and how you think about it. Like when I think about your book, that the three elements are like equities, yield, and options, even though those kind of blend together, but like kind of talk about like how you think about how do you achieve positive convexity in the natural resource space. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, let's start with the long book. So really the core criteria
1: is significant free cash flow generation that is sustainable, so not just someone that's going to generate great cash flow for three or four years, but can do it for 10 or 15 or 20. Low-cost structure, so they can survive the cyclical nature of these commodities. Um, Hopefully coupled with a management team who's willing to give some significant portion of that income free cash flow generation back to us. Um, we like to see a combination of growth and capital returns, so we're, we're not just necessarily looking for stagnating or even liquidating entities. We like people who can grow assets over time as well. Uh, and so you know we're willing to accept lower yields off of things like that, that have a growth element to them as well. Um, and then it's really about spreading the book across the resource spectrum in a way that gives us um, sort of stability. Uh, and I think most resource funds are typically kind of mostly energy, maybe a little bit of copper. And so that tends to be a very GDP, economic growth sensitive kind of book. Um, I like incorporating in areas like agriculture, with a, which are a little less cyclical um, from a traditional you um, know, growth sense. Uh, I like some of the processing industries or transportation industries, shipping uh, and uh, uh, refineries and chemical producers and things like that. Um, gold has a tendency to be countercyclical, and so you don't see a lot of people who incorporate a, a decent gold book into a traditional energy and maybe base metal book. Uh, and so that's an area that I've always really liked. Um, and then, you know, and then you do delve into those pockets and you sort of say, all right, how how big do I I want that to be? to And how should it fit into the overall structure? And then how do I construct it via the securities underneath it? And so I think the gold book right now is a really interesting example of that. You know, I have a combination of kind of larger cap gold producers, you know, again, very low cost, you know, generating good dividend yields, uh, and and good Highly economic growth, um, and those are sort of a basket. I think our biggest position there is seven or eight percent, but I think our total uh, precious metals books is you know over forty percent uh, of a, on a
0: gross basis of fund equity. Do you run any like constraint bans when you think about sector weighting, or do you not worry about that?
1: I don't, um, and it's really it, it, it's just if it feels too big, then you know you, you've got to take it down, or or if you can't find enough ways to express it, then you've got just got to keep it smaller. Um, so the way we've expressed the gold book is so we've got some producers, we've got some royalty companies, uh, and we also have a, a kind of a very interesting way to play that that I've talked about publicly before um, is a gold asset manager, where I think you know you've got uh, I'll, I'll go ahead and name it Sprott Inc. Uh, you know I used to work with John Hathaway at Tocqueville. Uh, he and Doug Rowe and the rest of the team um, are great mutual fund managers, but Sprott has this really interesting combination of physical. Uh, uh commodity e t f s not just precious metals but also uranium and and uh and other p g m s and things like that uh and and you look at at this asset manager and you know it was the same market cap uh you know stock base was the same place today when it was when they ran eight billion in a u m and then they went to sixteen billion in a u m and then they went to you know twenty plus billion dollars in a u m it's in the same spot uh and so in a world where i think People would prefer to play, if they're going to go into these dirty extractive industries um, and they're going to, you know, have to make a strain on their um, ESG thing, give them the easiest thing to find that they can. And a gold asset manager is a very low bar. The royalty companies are very similar because they don't have a big, they, they have relatively good ESG scores. And so you, what you've got is, you know, if, if, if you're, in my my parallel for this is in the early 2000s, so the, the great gold market of kind of 2001 to 2007. There was a period in sort of the middle part of that bull market where, you know, I think from 2004 to 2006, the um, GDI or the predecessor to the GDX was up 50 or 60%. So, you know, good move over a couple of years. The one major gold asset manager, which is a company called U.S. Global, was up tenfold. Um, and it was because portfolio managers kind of found a way, they're like, all right, this this market is getting underway. Gold asset managers can win in multiple ways um, in that they get both the appreciation of the existing asset base as the sector rallies, but they also get inflows. So there's a reflexive element to it that can make them go from you know, say 20 or 30 million or 20 or 30 billion under management to 100 billion under management. Then all of a sudden you sort of put a you know, uh, a 5% of AUM multiple on that, and you've got a stock that can go up five or six times where you're not taking geopolitical risk, you're not taking specific taxation risk or anything else. From You're not taking specific asset risk where, you know, you have a, a wall cave in or something like that or a tailings dam break. What you've got is just a very clean way to say, is this a sector that I think is going to work? Um, expressed in a way that can potentially be very asymmetric. In the interim, I'm just you know clipping a four percent dividend, and so I've got that positive carry with a convexity that's like it looks to me like assets could fall by half, and the stock would really not go down much from here.
0: One of the other things you said uh, yesterday that is one of those obvious things, but it takes a while to learn, and it's, it's easier said than done, is the idea, like like you said, you're, you're finding these securities, you're doing your due diligence, you like uh, cash flow, free cash flow, and that, that gives you that dividend yield. So there's your, your equity and your yield. But part of the, what you said, too, is if, if you structure the trade properly, and you're comfortable with what they're doing, and you can create that positive convexity through that structuring, that now your position size need to be larger. And it's like the correlation between position size, conviction, or limiting or truncating the left tail to open you up to the right tail is like now you found over the decades that you need to take larger positions than you previously would based on like maybe the... It wouldn't be volatility, but like you're figuring out a way to structure maybe lower volatility with positive asymmetry or based on like kind of like a Sortino ratio effect. It's
1: really about the asymmetry. Right. Um, you know, what is my potential to look in, in, you know, when I was a 25 or 30-year-old hedge fund manager, you know, I, I, the biggest upside had the biggest position in the portfolio. Um, you know, now it's more about upside relative to downside. Uh, and, you know, that's, that's just part of, you know, getting kicked in the teeth, uh, you know, a couple dozen times over the last 30 years. Um, so then the next element of it is the short book. Uh, and so, layered on top of that is areas where I try and isolate specific risks for the portfolio, whether it be in specific commodities. So, if I've got a big energy book running, I'm going to look for ways that I can find a short energy position, whether that be through you know companies kind of destroying uh, economic value, um, whether it be through um, you know, and this is true across the book. You know, a lot of times I like companies that are destroying a clearly negative cash flow and will be. Perpetually, um, but I also like finding companies where you know unsustainable dividend yields are being paid. And after twenty plus years of really understanding what's sustainable and what is not in the sector, when you find the unsustainable dividends, the the asymm- asymmetry on the downside when dividends have to be reduced or cut. Are fantastic. Uh, And so, you know, we've had something work this year in the wood pellet space that I thought was a little bit of a a kind of a BS green uh, story anyway. Uh, But there was a company involved with that that was, you know, paying double digit dividend yield that was generating negative free cash flow. And so you knew it could not last forever. And when they finally did cut it, you know the stock was already down fifty percent. It fell another seventy percent that day. Um, so that's that's where we try and create. So that's part of the short book is directly within the kind of resource verticals we have. Sometimes it's more efficient to express like we're vulnerable to a turn, a negative turn in the economy. Uh, and so, you know, whether it's whether you can express that well by shorting more cheap you know copper companies or steel companies or whatever You know, we do some of that when we can find situations where we think we've got an edge Um, but sometimes it's better expressed through other ways you know we have a little bit of a consumer discretionary um, short book on right now Um, also short a little bit in sort of subprime auto lenders and things like that where that is the uh, sort of the, the most vulnerable segment if we do have an economic slowdown that people would say oh no we're going to be consuming less resources you know Energy companies might not be the most the ones that, you know, trading at four times cash flow and, you know, ten percent dividend yields, they may not be the most vulnerable to that. The most vulnerable to that is kind of consumer or, you know, some of these highly leveraged stocks that that really require consumer spending and consumer health to remain very, very high. You know, look, if pe- if you think people are gonna drive their cars less, maybe they just can't afford the car. <laughs> So um, so that's that's where I think um, you know there are some other things in our book that are a little bit tangential um, to what we do. And then the overlay on top of that, and when you mention the options, you know this is a, you know something that we've been doing for the last four years is sort of a long volatility overlay in areas where we think we can find cheap expressions of volatility um, that correlate well with the vulnerabilities of the portfolio. you know sometimes that can be, you know for a while we were sort of long dollar calls, you know. The weird thing was last year, both long resource equities and long dollar calls actually worked. And Mm -hmm. so that's uncommon. Um, But under normal circumstances, a spike in dollar is something that resource stocks are vulnerable to. You know, right now we own, you know, um, some out-of-the-money puts on the emerging market index, which is typically a group that trades pretty similarly to natural resource equities. And it's just cheaper than buying, you know, puts on the oil service index. Or, you know, vol there is three times as high as it is in the EEM. There are some other places where you know this is always an evolution, and as we have become a bigger fund, more instruments open up to us. And so two of the spaces that I think are very interesting for us to try to hedge with um, on a real macro basis are um, sort of the growth value rotation, which we have a tendency to be a little bit vulnerable to um, because, you know, when when growth is in favor and people are selling all their, their resource stocks, that's oftentimes that's, you know, either neutral or modestly positive for our short book. In other words, those stocks are going up instead of down. And our long book is, is suffering. Um, but the other area that, um, that there are some interesting ways to potentially hedge in, very highly convex ways, um, is forward inflation expectations. So clearly when inflation expectations are running high and you go into something like the five-year, five-year forwards market and, um, and, and be able to hedge, whatever might cause inflation expectations to come down rapidly... Um, that's an interesting way for us to hedge our portfolio as well. And again, it's not a significant capital allocation for us at any given time. It's kind of 1% to 2% of fund equity. But when we get those th- things right, they can be very powerful counterweights um, to negative and shock environments for our long book. And, you know, one of the things that I, I another thing that I talked about yesterday was. Uh, Resource stocks are never going to get this slow and steady up into the right bull market like um, healthcare or technology, because the environment that makes resource stocks perform well, which is rising commodity prices, which is typically a component of rising inflation, you know that is inherently a very destabilizing force on the broader market, particularly a market that is priced for inflation never to be a sustainable entity ever again.
0: Uh, And so that's something that we want to be cognizant of. I also think about like uh, you yes. get that amazing amount of positive uh, asymmetry in options market when those correlation flips. Like you said, that long di- like if you're on the other side of that, and historically that correlation's been negative or it flips to positive or vice versa. That's when you get some really explosiveness because people are just basing it on a short term look back. And if you can time those correlation changes, that's amazing. One of the other, I thought brilliant questions that Chris Abromasia did ask you yesterday is like. And this is a relation to the China Belt and Road and global macro, and how you think about that is like, he said, Do you just hedge out and neutralize your global macro risk so that way you can, you know, really just look at them as idiosyncratic bets? Or like, so how do you think about that?
1: Yeah. And that's sort of that's all part of what, um, you know, the short book and the option book do is kind of addressing those current risks. And it's it's never going to be a clean dollar for dollar, 100 delta kind of hedge. Um, but if we can find ways where we can inexpensively express that or, you you know, look, so if I'm trying to neutralize my falling oil book uh, or my long energy book um, from falling oil prices, I can express that either in puts or put spreads in the energy in, in oil specifically. Um, I can do that, you know, via puts on uh, energy and resource indices. Uh, I can do it um, via short individual equities. Um, and clearly for us, the best is if we can find alpha generator pardon me alpha generating shorts at the same time that we can layer on top of a long book that we're very excited about which is you know kind of where we are today um that's the best of all worlds and so it's just a matter of kind of looking at the at the entire you know spectrum of ways to be able to um to try and say you know take a step back and say look i have to have a macro view um but my macro view does not have to be correct. Um, and more importantly, if my macro view is wrong, how much am I going to lose? Uh, and so, you know, one of the other, you know, there's, there's so many wonderful things about this whole event, but, you know, you, you talk to someone like Mike Green who, um, you know, is talking about some of the underlying um you know, sort of net distribution that's happening and, and, you know, the potential for a little bit of index fund selling and things like that, a reversal of kind of the passive flows. Uh, and it 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 perks up your ears about the need to really be thoughtful, about, you know, a risk of a kind of equity liquidation cycle is not something that I think there's much in the equity markets that's priced for right now. And there are Probably some relatively inexpensive ways to express that. And so, you know, again, that's another risk that if you can find a way to throw 30 or 40 or 50 basis points at it, um, you know, they can potentially give you a 10 or 15 or 20 to one kind of payout. Those are those are bets worth making.
0: So unfortunately, we're running up on time here, but we don't want to miss our sailboat on this beautiful lake behind us. But I thought a, a perfect place to end is because you teased it earlier. So I'll give the audience the morsels that it wants. You teased like, some of the opportunities in Europe right now. Like, Tell us about what you think is one of the more interesting trade ideas or interesting ideas you have like that could potentially uh, be implemented in Europe.
1: Yeah, so I'll speak at, about this at a high level because
0: yep. I'm actually still constructing it myself and, and still kind
1: of getting positioned for it. But what I spoke about earlier, which was we have swung from maximum concern to maximum compliance complacency in the European power markets. Uh, and so you look at uh, some of the natural gas producers in the North Sea and some of the related areas that really feed into the European energy system, and they had this; they had an unbelievable year last year. I mean, many of these companies generated their entire market caps in free cash. And um, what they did is they paid out debt, they started capital return programs, and now the stocks are kind of 50% off their highs. They're trading at, you know, two, three, four times cash flow. You can construct a basket of these stocks with kind of different characteristics. So you're you're spreading around your um, risk of specific, uh, you know, specific jurisdictions, specific uh, assets, and things like that. And you can create kind of this interesting basket with a mid to high single digit yield, kind of nice growth component to it. You're paying two or three times cash flow, um, and expectations for European power prices are you know, are, are, are in the in the gutter. And so, you know, I look at that market and I just, I love, impl- complacency intrigues me yeah. um, because these markets are self-correcting and yeah. it's, you know, they it, it, it beats you over the head time and time again. But when you're able to step into those, and, you know, stocks have gotten blown out and they're kind of basing around and they're not acting poorly on, you know, bad news or concerns about windfall taxes or anything like that, you know, it kind of feels like this is an area to pick up cheap convexity and so and again with the positive carry and so you've got kind of a six to nine month window where you know look maybe you know maybe we get another super warm winter and you know these stocks you you clip your six or seven or eight percent dividend yield and you know maybe these guys retire a little bit of stock or yeah and and so fine you know six to eight percent in my worst case scenario that's okay um, but if we do get to a tight market which i can actually see Because of the availability of LNG, because of sort of the turning on of some of the other European industries that were shut down last winter, um, now you get the opportunity set for, you know, these stocks could double pretty easily. Um, And so, you know, we've got a portion of our energy book is is allocated to that, and we're kind of in the process of growing that.
0: So you had some other really interesting ideas around like carbon sequestration. You had some amazing statistics around Petrobras. But for people to have those kind of ideas, they're going to have to come to the next collective event. (laughs) We can't give away all the secret sauce. But I want to thank you for this conversation. I always love picking your brain about resources. And also want to give a huge shout out to Shannon and the collective for obviously giving us this beautiful place to have these intimate conversations where we don't have to worry about kind of the outside world and we can all kind of banter back and forth. And iron sharpens iron. That's what I love about these is like you have all kinds of experts in the room, and people really push back, and, and collectively, we hopefully find a better place. Yeah. So, once again, thank, thank you for, for coming me. on. Uh, this has
1: been fantastic, Jason, and, and such a wonderful event. And um, You know, like I say, look, my previous travels this month were, you know, I went to two different conferences, a mining conference and an agricultural conference, met with 40 companies over the course of, collectively, like six or seven days, and so that's part of the blocking and tackling of what I do. The harder part of what I do is creating the worldview and how to express it um, that enables me um, to be a better portfolio manager, not just the mechanics of the companies underlying it, but really how to construct a portfolio that's going to weather the whatever the world looks like over the next six to nine months. And this is that's why this this sort of opportunity set is so unique, and it's been it's been a lot of fun.